and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I should say good morning, because uh, I recorded a whole hour and 10 minute solo Remnant uh, yesterday at the end of the day, and I hated it. I was I don't know if it was that bad. I mean, we have it. Someone can listen to it if they want, but um, I just didn't like it. I was cranky. It was dyspeptic. Um, um, it was a end of the long day and um um and it just seemed even more rambly and incoherent to me on the inside then again these things always end with me feeling rambly and incoherent and i um you know people tell me it's impressive that i can just talk for an hour <laughs> i kind of think it's in some ways damning but it is what it is and we've got uh the dispatch podcast in exactly like an hour and 15 minutes from now. So um, I got to get this thing started. Um, and uh, and also, there was the Kevin McCarthy, you know, uh, development last night that I hadn't addressed. And so I figured I should get into that as well. Um, oh, and speaking of things I didn't address, you know, it, 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 some people complained that I didn't talk about the, uh, French elections with Thomas Chatterson Williams were in what I thought was a really great conversation. He's such a, um, such a charming, even keeled, um, common sense, decent dude. Um, uh, and the truth is, is that I planned going into it and talking about the French elections, but, um, I knew it was, we were recording before the debate and um things just went long and then to switch gears i just figured it would be a big change in tone and require a lot of explainers to explain who at least you know beyond marine le pen and Macron, um who the other candidates were and how their system works and blah 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 blah, blah. so maybe i'll do a post election since it's uh the uh the french elections this sunday um maybe we'll do a, a a post a French election podcast. Um, anyway, uh, it's still going to be a, any number of digressions this morning because uh, that's how it works. Uh, the Kevin McCarthy thing. So, you know, Kevin McCarthy flatly denied that he ever was going to ask Trump to resign. And um, uh, then last night, Rachel Maddow got the tape the audio recording of Kevin McCarthy talking through how he was going to ask Trump to resign. And, um, it is among the least shocking things in the world. Um, uh, except the political malpractice of it. Like the idea that McCarthy's team did not understand that this, there was a real risk of someone having a tape of him saying this, um, is utterly bizarre to me. Um, and there's a lot of speculation that it was Liz Cheney who recorded this conversation and maybe, maybe it was, it, it kind of seems like the best guess. And maybe that's been confirmed. I haven't seen that, you know, this thing broke late last night and then, um, uh, you know, I got up and walked the dogs and started recording. So, um, so I haven't gone deep into the weeds on this stuff, but it just seems to me that like he had to, I bet you he had this conversation with a bunch of people. I mean, every single member of the house probably called him in a panic in those days from January 6th to say January 9. And the idea that somehow not, there were no recordings of, of the various meetings that he had and the conference calls that he had and to give a blanket denial of something which could be refuted is uh, just, it strikes me as kind of, kind of dumb. And um, particularly when there's a lot of people gunning for McCarthy. And I don't mean just Liz Cheney. I mean, like, you know, Scalise and Banks and these other congressmen who want to be speaker. And um, and so I just think the irony, um, uh, I think the odds of him being speaker um, have greatly diminished. I don't think this costs the Republicans the midterms or anything like that. I still think the Republicans are going to have a great midterm. But uh, 
I think this severely damages his chances of being speaker, at least speaker for long. I've been joking on this podcast and on the dispatch podcast and, you know, to random people in the, in line at the dry cleaner and at the Starbucks that, uh, the greatest comeuppance for Kevin McCarthy will be winning this election and sort of like God telling Moses, he can't go into the promised land. Um, Trump saying, yeah, I changed my mind. I don't think you're the speaker I want. And, uh, forcing, um, uh, somebody else basically to, to take that job because Trump can do that. Uh, Trump doesn't like Kevin McCarthy. He certainly doesn't trust Kevin McCarthy. And uh, all Trump needs is like, I mean, it depends what the margin is um, of, of the Republican victory. If if the Republican caucus is massive, maybe Trump can't get enough MAGA Jim Jordan types to say we won't support McCarthy under any circumstances, depriving McCarthy of a majority of the Republican caucus. But my hunch is, is he can and um, um, and that it would just be, you know, to, to have spent so much time spelunking up Trump's posterior uh, in order to get this job he wanted all his life and then to have Trump betray him um, after he actually pulls it off. Um, I just sort of thought that would be the fitting end of all this. But it hadn't occurred to me that an even more fitting end would be this quote-unquote scandal of it being revealed that in private Kevin McCarthy was saying the right and honorable and decent and moral things um, and the the expose that he was at least at one point um, uh, a closet closet moral normal guy um, being his undoing is is it's it's almost literary Um, so we'll see where it goes. You know, it, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this won't do, you know, damage. I don't think it's necessarily going to do damage in the, in the days ahead. Everyone's in the Republican caucus is too focused on the midterms, but, um, I shouldn't say, I don't think it's going to do severe damage in the days ahead. It will make it very difficult for McCarthy to go anywhere other than a handful of, of Fox shows without having to answer a lot of questions about this. I mean, and OAN and, you know, whatever, but like, he can't do Brett bear show without Brett, you know, uh, grilling him on this. And, um, you know, I'm sure he could do Hannity's show, but, uh, you know, he can't go on meet the press or any of those kinds of shows without being asked about this. And that's, it's, it's a bad look because they have tape (laughs) and anyway, I'm sure we're going to talk about this more in the dispatch, uh, podcast in, uh, just about an hour. So, um, we can just leave it there. Uh, but there's your on the news newsiness part of it. Um, what else? Uh, situate, you know, it's one of these, one of these dilemmas, right? I, with Ukraine, it is totally in my wheelhouse and in the wheelhouse of the dispatch to complain about, um, uh, outrage fatigue and people moving on from the Ukraine story and getting bored with it. And I think that's a real problem and a real concern. And at the same time, I also understand how it's kind of baked into um, the job, right? The job description. I mean, like not that much has changed that I can talk about it day in and day out. Um, not that much has changed that I can write new columns about the same set of basic facts. Um, and so you feel kind of caught betwixt in between. You want to decry, you know, people, you know, losing their attention, um, and losing their concern. And at the same time, you feel like you're obliged to talk about other things as well. Um, I do think that, that, that Ukraine is, um, likely to, at the end of the day, barring the use of tactical nukes and that kind of thing, it, I think at the end of the day, we'll, we'll win. Um, but man, will it be a Pyrrhic victory. Um, and I mean, the cost of it will just be so stratospheric um, that 
calling it a victory makes only makes sense in a sort of, um, you know, how history will remember it textbook kind of thing. Um, and also this, you know, this assumes that he is not, uh, you know, killed by some drone strike or missile strike that, you know, if the Russians actually got their act together and had some intel about where he was, um, uh, when he was vulnerable. Uh, but, you know, I, I think my hunch is, is that, you know, that this, this definitely ends badly for Russia and, and in a way that at least on military terms and sort of, uh, moral victory terms, we'll be able to say one day that Ukraine won this thing. Um, but the price paid by Ukraine is just so, just so enormous. Um, I'm increasingly interested. In, I, I haven't decided on, maybe I'll write about this in the Jew file today. I, I don't know, but like I'm, I'm there's, you know, I have this long standing argument. It's actually one of the, um, you know, I, I tell people that suicide, the West, I wrote, um, you know, probably another couple hundred thousand words beyond what the book actually became. And so like one of the chapters I didn't run became that, which that, um, that piece I did for commentary about anti-Semitism and, and Marx and the labor theory of value, um, which I think I read a version of on the podcast a while back. Uh, I'm pretty sure I did. We can put that in the show notes. Um, and another one is this longstanding argument of mine, which um, I'm pretty, pretty rigidly committed to, which is that, uh, that socialism inevitably becomes nationalism um, and um, and nationalism inevitably becomes socialism. And part of this is a long-standing argument you probably heard me talk about a lot of times, which is that from the classical liberal slash conservative in the Anglo-American tradition perspective, when you are, you know, that uh, from that perspective, socialism and nationalism are essentially synonymous in a lot of important ways. Um, uh, when you nationalize an industry, you socialize it. When you have socialized medicine, that means nationalized healthcare, right? Um, but I, I mean more conceptually and more um, fundamentally than, than that sort of thing. Um, I mean, you could go through... I used to say you could go through almost any speech by Castro and replace the words socialist and socialism and replace them with nationalist and nationalism. And it really wouldn't change the meaning. And, you know, this is part of a larger point about how, um, uh, communist movements in the 20th century were also nationalist movements. If you don't think the North Vietnamese was a nationalist movement, right. It's national liberation. Um, you don't know much about that stuff. If you don't think, you know, the Koreans were nationalists as well as, you know, socialists, you don't know much about that. Um, and this gets that this fundamental point of mine is that I think that the, um, that the internal logic of socialism requires nationalism to keep a socialist regime alive. And I'm talking about like hot socialism. I'm not talking about social democracy where you have the relief valves of elections to um, keep uh, the sort of ruling class in check. I'm talking about, you know, command and control kind of socialism where, um, you know, it's one party rule kind of thing. And, um, you know, we're in the early stages of watching how China is embracing nationalism to sustain its regime. Um, and, but the best example is Russia and, um, I did a lot of reading about this back in the day. And it's one of my big points for a long time. It's like, first of all, like Stalin, you know, the second, the second, the Soviet union, um, uh, abandons and they abandoned it pretty fricking early. Um, Trotsky's idea of world revolution of exporting revolution, um, which let's be fair. wasn't original to Trotsky. It was just that he was the foremost, um, uh, advocate of it in the internecine squad, you know, fight between Stalin and Trotsky. Trotsky was the revolution everywhere guy. And Stalin was in effect, the socialism in one state guy. 
And when the socialism in one state argument won, Russia became increasingly nationalist. And so it's kind of fascinating. If you go back and you look at the history about all this stuff, the the original Bolsheviks, you know, in part because people forget that uh, the Bolsheviks and these other communist groups were um, in constant competition with and sometimes in alliances with the anarchists. And, you know, all of that withering away of the state stuff that's in, you know, that, that, that the early Bolsheviks, you know, and Marxists talked about, that was really the anarchist kind of influence there about promising that the state's just going to get out of the way entirely. And it's hard for us to sort of grok this, this kind of thing these days, but this kind of hyper-libertarian um, anarchic um, socialism was a thing. And today we kind of think of like, you know, hyper-libertarian as being utterly in, incompatible with communism, but it wasn't seen that way in the late 19th and, and early 20th centuries. And so when the Bolsheviks first took power, you know, they had all sorts of extremely libertarian, I mean, for again, bad use of, uh, the, not the best use of the label here, I'll be fair to my libertarian friends, but uh, wildly liberalized abortion laws, basically made abortion on demand, basically made uh, divorce on demand possible, did all sorts of stuff like that, that, um, you know, liberated women. Uh, there was always a very strong feminist thing to, to Bolshevism. And by the late 20s and early 30s, um, if I write about this, I have all the dates because, I, again, I wrote this whole chapter about some of this stuff. Um, by the late 20s, early 30s, uh, Russia had moved back into uh, embracing virtue and the historic role of um, fatherly and masculine virtue and and the woman's place being, you know, a mother and a wife and all of that kind of stuff. And they they tightened up the abortion laws. They, they loosened them up again later. But like my point is, is that a lot of the cultural stuff um, stopped being libertarian or uh, uh, anarchic and um, became very culturally conservative. And, you know, by the time you get World War Two around, you have, um, you know, that war wasn't fought to free the workers of the world. That war was fought as the great patriotic war for mother Russia, which is a pretty nationalist sort of framing. Right. And, um, and the reason why I think that this is sort of important, well, one of the reasons why I think it's sort of important is, or at the sort of meta fundamental level is that um, hyper rational socialist theory um isn't enough to sustain a society's commitment to the regime. It just doesn't give enough of that emotional, historic uh, sense of community, sense of belonging uh, that ethno-nationalism, uh, that historic sort of uh, fealty to the sacrifices of our ancestors, all of those sorts of things, the, those emotional and and almost literary kind of commitments that make um, make a nation work that that common bond kind of thing, and so socialist regimes, particularly when they get increasingly corrupt, as they inevitably do if they don't have rule of law and democracy, um, they fall back on that. And what I think is new and interesting, at least new and interesting to me, because I hadn't been really paid attention to it, but I've been reading a bunch about you know Putinism. Is, is basically this argument, which I've seen a bunch of people make, um, that basically it was up until about um, 1960s, like Khrushchev was probably the last guy who actually believed in perpetuating, who actually believed they were fighting for the ultimate goal of achieving um real existing communism, you know, of the, that of fulfilling the prophecies of Marxism, um, a committed ideologically, um, believing in sincere communist. And then 
basically the sort of managerial class, the new class, the bureaucratic class, the party class, whatever like labels we want to put on it, um, said, eh, this just doesn't work. People don't buy it anymore. Um, our attempts to create a new Soviet man have failed. So um, we need some other unifying myth, some narrative that binds the people together. And what they increasingly um, settled on was Russia's historic role in defeating Nazism. And so a what was at first sort of a fairly innocuous uh, cultural campaign in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, uh, Putin brought back, starting around, you know, early on in his regime uh, as basically a new state cult, the cult of anti-Nazism. And so like, in I, I haven't been able to find it. If someone can find it. Um, I know that in 2015, because I was looking at this stuff yesterday, uh, Putin asked the Duma to write a law making it punishable by 10 years in prison to compare the Soviet Union uh, to Nazi Germany um in any way uh in any invidious way right i mean it's like you're not supposed to point out the similarities is what what the issue is which you know side note is going to be i i do wonder if my book uh if liberal fascism has been banned in russia because it was uh translated into russian and um and i'd be curious to know um because Liberal fascism is full of comparisons of the Soviet Union to, to Nazi Germany and 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 trying to put uh, national socialism and fascism in that uh, political context. And um, and so if, if that law passed, I suspect that it's certainly illegal to read my book out loud in the Soviet Union, which is um, kind of interesting. Um, anyway, so they made this 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 the this sort of cult of anti-Nazism where the Soviet Union is the nation that saved the world from the plague of Nazism, um, sort of the unifying um, myth or what, um, you know, uh, some people call the enchantment creed of, of the new Russia, of Putin's Russia. And um, anyway, oh, the thing I said, I, I couldn't find is whether or not the law actually passed. I, I can't find any evidence one way or the other. I assume it did because when Putin asks his Duma to do something, it usually gets done. Um, when, uh, uh, when Putin first announced the special military operation, what was it back in February? Uh, he, he said something along the lines of, of course I must ask my Duma uh, for permission and for about a month, my joke around the house was caught, was referring to my wife as the Duma and um, always saying, of course, I have to wa ask my my I have to ask the Duma for permission. Um, but uh, uh, the um, anyway, the the new Russia, this, this sort of mythic cult of anti-Nazism kind of helps explain why they had to call the Ukrainians Nazis. Right. Um, and, uh, and what's interesting to me is that, so, you know, Putin is a, or one of the things that's interesting to me is Putin is, you know, a KGB guy who probably remembers these initiatives to sort of play up the savior of the world, um, who, you know, uh, who delivered us from Nazi rule angle. Um, and he's trying to reimpose it on a nation state that is not communist or socialist. I mean, it's just, it's, um, a cacocracy, you know, um, cacocracy, which is rule of the worst. Um, you know, I think sort of technically it's, it's, it's the rule of, you know, the poop people. I don't want to curse because I keep getting reminded that there's sometimes kids in the car listening to this. Um, but it's the only thing that can take a, uh, you know, a really beaten down population and unify it. 
is this sort of messianic understanding of Russia's role as the savior of the world. And what's actually legitimately scary about that is that what's the limiting principle on that? I mean, apparently on state TV yesterday, um, a bunch of these people were talking about um, how Russia could destroy New York City with a, with a nuclear bomb. And it's worth remembering when totalitarian or authoritarian regimes have their state media discuss things, those are much closer to official statements or at least official acts of propaganda than in the United States. Um, you know, as much as it may seem otherwise, Joy Reid um, or Rachel Maddow do not actually speak for the Biden administration uh, when they freelance stuff. Uh, but if you're a talking head on state TV, your stuff has been pre-cleared by government censors. And it may actually have just been written for you by government propagandists. And so while I don't think actually there's much chance of, of, of Putin launching a nuclear missile at New York City, um, San Francisco, you're toast, though. Just kidding. Um, well, I don't think there's much chance that they're actually going to do that. It's, it's another reminder that, you know, all this talk about escalation is, you know, it's a two-way street. Uh, to talk about, to saber rattle with um, intercontinental ballistic missiles like that is an escalation and um, and should be treated as such. And, you know, the administration, I, I don't want to be like super finger wagging and, and expert sounding on this because I could imagine there are a bunch of different ways to play this. But I'm tempted to say that the administration, you know, should say this is an outrageous provocation and escalation. Um, but there's also probably an argument about saying we don't take that, the, the, that kind of bluffing seriously. It just feels to me that that kind of response sort of it goads Russia to prove that it's not bluffing because as, as my colleague Klon Kitchen keeps pointing out, Putin is going to need to restore his reputation as being scary and formidable. And if you keep talking about um, how, you know, he's, he's feckless and weak and a fool, um, it creates even more of an incentive for him to prove otherwise. And so that kind of response might be bad. But regardless, it's an escalation. It's outrageous that, you know, they're talking like that. And um, obviously, they're trying to intimidate the United States and scare off this, the, the more scarable parts of NATO. Um, but anyway, right, so I've talked about Ukraine and Russia, and um, um, we can sort of check that box for now. What else? Um, let's do some rank punditry. Uh, the, we are entering um, what I've been calling the... Uh, pre-crimination phase of the midterms. And I want to give credit. I'm pretty sure that Mickey Kautz is the guy who coined the term pre-criminations, although it might have been Michael Kinsley, but I think it was Mickey. And um, basically, it's just this idea of getting out in front of the thing going bad and assigning blame before the event actually happens. Um, and uh, this happens... This is not unique to Democrats. It is not unique to the left. This is like an, a time-honored practice in politics. But you, you, and you tend to see it from ideologues who, what, it's a way to, to claim that you're being pragmatic and, um, um, and a party person while at the same time claiming that your ideological agenda is the only thing that will save the party. And so Elizabeth Warren, uh, I think it was this week, if not, it was last week, I think it was this week, had a piece of the New York Times saying how if Democrats don't go back to the sort of build back better agenda, um, which of course she calls the Biden agenda because it makes it seem like she's like this, this, this loyal party gal, and I don't mean party gal in the sort of um, Teddy Kennedy's boat kind of sense. I mean, like loyal to the Democratic Party gal. Um, uh, you know, she says, if we don't go back to Biden's agenda, 
um, you know, it'd be bad for these people, it'd be bad for those people, and we could even lose control of Congress. And the funny thing about this is like, like barring some major change in the current trends, I mean, just massive change in the current trends, which, you know, Biden's own pollster told Politico this week, um, have never been worse in his lifetime for the Democrats. Um, unless that changes in some unforeseen and, un, and as of now, unforeseeable way, the Democrats are just going to lose the House for sure. And maybe, maybe even probably the Senate. And, um, and so she knows this. But what she's trying to say is, you know, we have to do my stuff or we'll lose. And then when they lose, which they in all likelihood will without doing the stuff that she wants, by the way, she gets to say, look, we didn't do my stuff. I warned you that if we didn't do my stuff, we would lose. Now we've lost. Now we have to recommit as a party to doing my stuff. And, um, uh, you know, it's 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 not falsifiable. It's kind of brilliant. I mean, she again, she didn't invent the tactic, but we're seeing Bernie Sanders do a lot of the same kind of thing. And um, what's sort of fascinating to me about this is how disconnected from political reality it is. Uh, this was the point of uh, last Friday's G-File, which I, I thought was pretty good, um, particularly under the circumstances in, in which I wrote it. And, um, uh, you know, the and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, so I'm not going to go too deep in the weeds on it. But I basically I compared what's going on with the Democratic Party and the sort of progressive elite, you know, journalistic uh, foundation world generally sort of uh, tied to this long piece by Michael Lind, um, who I am not in the practice of invoking favorably, but I thought it was a good piece, even if I had my disagreements with it. Um, you know, he makes the case that the, the Ford Foundation, uh, you know, ACLU, Harvard, Yale, elite, the elite progressive world um, has so captured the uh, the commanding heights of liberalism, forget the culture, of liberalism itself, of progressivism itself, um, and has so constrained the scope of permissible debate that um, Democrats are just tying themselves in knots and liberals are tying themselves in knots because they cannot entertain a diversity of, again, left of center points of view about how to do public policy and all this stuff. And so you have, um, and I, I so I compared this to, you know, there are certain industries or vocations that, and this is a longstanding gripe of mine, um, that get kind of captured by the avant-garde of those vocations. And the example I most often give is architecture. Um, you know, I know there are people, some of them are friends of mine, who really like modern architecture. Um, you know, uh, and that's fine. And there's some there are some aspects of modern ar ar architecture that are cool, or they're certainly inventive. Um, and I tend to find that modern architecture is much more aesthetically pleasing on the interior than it is on the exterior. I find, but what I mean by that is I like there are a lot of four seasons hotels that are sort of modern architecture inside. They're incredibly comfortable and nice, but outside they're just ugly. They're almost brutalist. Um, and I think the same thing is true with a lot of office buildings, um, apartment buildings, uh, the, they're just ugly. And I, I think that it is, or they're just not aesthetically pleasing. Um, or if we want to like do a major deep cut throwback, to um, one of the long-running themes on here, they are more reminiscent of the hyper-rationalist style of um, the French uh, uh, gardens, um, which impose geometric perfection on nature, than they are reminiscent of uh, the English garden, which allows uh, nature to express itself um, in its best possible version of itself. And so what I mean by this is like, I would much rather look at 
a 150-year-old building than almost any modern building. I, I mean, I'm sure there's an exception. Um, I think Hobbit worms, Hobbit warrens, you know, or Hobbit holes where Hobbits live in the Shire, are infinitely more attractive than uh, modern modern condos. Um, anyway, and I think the reason for this, sort of sociologically, is that uh, some of it has to do with regulations, and some of it has to do with uh, you know changes in technology and the the um, the withering away of memory of people who knew how to do the old style stuff, um, which was a real skill um, and a craft. But the you look around at at architects, and in my experience, architecture is one of the greatest examples of a field where the leading people in the field do not do what they do for the praise or approval of the general public. They do it for the praise and approval of other architects, of sort of cutting edge art, uh, architecture critics, um, and a very fringe elite that doesn't share the aesthetic values of normal people. And I'm not, when I say normal people, I don't mean like salt of the earth uh, you know, soybean farmers, although I include them in it, I mean, also plenty of educated people, you know, I just mean people who don't, who don't know the sort of subtle cues and interesting things about modern architecture. And they just take it in as a whole and say, eh, it's a really square building with windows that don't open and, um, and lots of hard rectangles and squares on it. Bleh. Meanwhile, if you look at, you know, older buildings, you know, they're cool looking. And they, they're more pleasing to the eye. Walk around downtown Barcelona and you'll just, it's just a prettier place than a place with modern architecture. And, um, and I think this happens to a lot of places and sometimes it's totally fine, right? If you're a, if you're a chemical engineer, I want you writing, you know, sci in scientific journals for your peers, not for the general public. Um, but the place I compared the Democratic Party to most acutely is the, um, or most directly, is in cooking. Um, there are chefs who really are sort of, you know, doing the, was it the edge of the envelope or whatever, um, whatever that phrase is. Um, they're doing cutting edge stuff um, that is closer to sort of chemistry than it is cooking, in my opinion. And sometimes it works. Like, I think it's not Andy Dufresne, because he's the guy from Shawshank Redemption, but it's, it's William Dufresne. Uh, there's a guy who, uh, his restaurant, I think, is WD-40. He's on Top Chef a lot. And he does molecular gastronomy. And it's interesting. It doesn't really look, a lot of the time, all that appealing to the eye. But I assume it tastes pretty good most of the time. But regardless, there are lots of, chefs who do stupid stuff and sometimes it's just a sort of conspicuous consumption um scam you know like there's a restaurant in new york that puts gold leaf in its burger so they can charge a thousand dollars for the burger now i've actually eaten um a dessert or two that had gold leaf in it it adds no flavor it's cool to the eye for a moment but it's, it's it doesn't taste any better in fact i think it makes things taste worse there's no point to it other than decoration and justifying increasing the cost. Um, but there are people who want to be able to say, yeah, I spent a thousand dollars on a burger and, you know, kudos to anybody who can part, who can separate um, suckers like that from a thousand dollars. That's fine. But, um, but whether it's that kind of sort of, you know, you know, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous nonsense or whether it's, um, you know, sincere sort of cutting edge uh, desire to do something different and reject, um, you know, traditional sort of stuff. Uh, that doesn't appeal to normal people. And again, I'm using normal people in an incredibly broad and expansive way to cover most people, most people who don't know what a beard award is. Most people who don't think it makes sense to spend that much money on food that doesn't necessarily taste better, but just um, is super innovative. Um, and that's sort of where the Democratic Party is. They're talking about doing things that um, are 
that sound brilliant and necessary to a very more a very small slice of Democrats um, and people in and and people in the media who tend to side with Democrats, you know. Um, and you know, I heard Pod on his uh, niche podcast the other day talking about how he was on Meet the Press and. Everyone wanted to talk about, you know, how does Biden bring back Build Back Better and doesn't he need to bring Build Back Better? And, and John's like, you know, I feel like I'm in a parallel universe because what Biden needs to do is talk about inflation and fix inflation and be seen as fixing inflation. Um, but the Democrats don't want to talk about the problems that they have. They want to talk about the problems that they, they, they want to solve. And that's a different thing. And, um, and I think it's because they've been captured by the equivalent of the molecular gastronomy crowd of, uh, of liberalism. And I got, I highly recommend, you know, read, you know, Roy Teixeira's newsletter or his piece in the latest, um, not the latest, but uh, the recent national review, um, Democrats are becoming wildly disconnected from, uh, from their own voters um, and I mean, like literally, like the median Democratic voter is way to the right of most of the people you see representing the Democratic Party on TV. Um, what else to talk about? Uh, um, let's see. All right, so this Disney thing. Um, uh, I, I've been sort of reluctant to talk about it because I am not of one mind about it. Um, I'm sort of a uncontrolled prairie fire of nuance about this because, uh, I can see the point of various people on different sides of it. And I think they all have good points, which is in part a sign of how risky and, um, and bold what DeSantis is doing is because what he's doing is clearly, uh, dividing all sorts of members of his own coalition of his own electorate. Um, and he's taken a real, it's a real hail Mary play. I think at the national level, it is going to work for him on the state level. I am not sure, right? This is purely a political thing. I'm not talking about right or wrong. Um, I'm talking about morality. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, good policy, even I'm just talking about rank, you know, political analysis of it. Um, I think this will probably almost certainly be a big winner for him on the, among conservative, among the right nationally and within the Republican party. And particularly in the sort of sub Rosa conflict he's having with Donald Trump, because what he's doing is he's signaling that he can be Trump like, but effective in ways that Trump couldn't be. Um, and he's fighting woke capital and big corporations and, um, um, and he's doing it on these third rail culture war issues, which the right has convinced itself it always loses. And so again, I think it is um, probably a political winner nationally. It remains to be seen whether it's a political winner in the state of Florida, right? Because you're basically talking about raising the taxes of a lot of Floridians to make up for getting rid of the special ta status um, for Disney World. And somebody else can explain to you the, the, the special autonomous zone nature, how all that works. Um, we'll put in the show notes, Charlie Cook and National Review had a really good piece opposing all of this, but also explaining, you know, some of this stuff. Um, um, more of just, you know, Disney has been the 800 pound gorilla in the state of Florida for a very, very long time. In fact, while Charlie makes a very good case that this, this special zone thing, this independent zone thing that Disney enjoyed was not a carve out per se. Um, you know, what a year ago when DeSantis did that really dumb social media censorship, suck up to Trump legislation he did give Disney a carve out for that. He exempted Disney plus from these regulations of streaming and, 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 and other digital platforms or whatever. And everybody understood it is because Disney is special and in the state of Florida and gets just sort of a wide berth. 
And um, so it's interesting that the politics that made that necessary, what, a year ago, all of a sudden DeSantis is calculated no longer apply for something that is a much bigger assault on or counter assault on Disney. Um, and voters in Florida, you know, you guys got to run for reelection in in the for governor, um, or at least that's his plan, I think resigning prematurely would be, a, or not deciding not to run has its own fraught things, but he's apparently running. Um, you know, peeing in the cornflakes of, of Disney could affect that. We'll see. And, um, and sorry, so those are the politics. <sighs> About the, the actual policy. I think Charlie makes a very, very, very persuasive on its own terms case that this was unnecessary that DeSantis had already won the relevant battle, the parents' rights bill um, that opponents call Don't Say Gay passed. So he won. And um, and he did not need to extend his advance any further than that. Um, but egged on by all the people who egged him on, he decided that he was going to go after, you know, Disney sort of Chicago style. And it's gratuitous, as Charlie would argue. And I, I think he makes a very good case for that. I also think the people who make the case that um, whatever the merits or demerits of that special public partner, public-private partnership that allowed for that independent zone, um, uh, whatever the, whatever violations of sort of uh, libertarian or conservative principle those represented, and we'll come back to that in a second because I'm conflicted on that too. Um, this is clearly the government uh, singling out a corporation and punishing it because uh, it exercised its free speech rights. And corporations have free speech rights. Because corporations, as Mitt and Ron Lee said at the end of the day, are people. And if you don't, if, if you get very, very angry when people say corporations have free speech rights, uh, keep in mind that, you know, universities are incorporated. Um, ACLU is incorporated. The Dispatch is incorporated. National Review is, is incorporated. The Nation is incorporated. Um, you you can go far down into rabbit holes, distinguishing between one kind of organization and another. Um, but uh, the simple fact is, is that corporations do have free speech rights. And, um, and certainly the heads of corporations have free speech rights. And so I think that the Disney corporation made an incandescently stupid decision, picking the fight the way it did. It kind of got dragged into it. Um, unwittingly and then got itself into even more trouble. But that doesn't change the fact that what DeSantis is doing is basically uh, using the power of the state to punish a corporation for saying something and, and taking a position on a piece of legislation. And, um, and it gets even more complicated because obviously part of the subtext here is that the punishment of Disney in terms of the activist activist groups on the right that are all worked up about this, they want Disney punished for the stuff that leaked out of that uh, that in-house all hands on deck meeting where they talked about you know putting gay stuff and transgender stuff into Disney's um, programming. And I hate I'm not going to call it grooming. I think that stuff is grotesque and it is it is a horrible abuse of the word um and it leads uh way too easily for charges of people being pedophile pedophiles are pro-pedophile um i think jonathan roush made a very strong case that um such such charges are particularly dangerous against gay people and unfairly dangerous against gay people um and uh but Regardless, the people egging on DeSantis to do this thing against Disney, it has less to do with Disney opposing um, the bill, which I don't think is a justifiable reason to do this. It's more to do with this wider and deeper culture war stuff. 
And um, uh, but DeSantis can't say that. So he says it's, you know, you tried to influence the state and you expect us all to bend the knee to corporate power and woke capitalism, blah, 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 blah. And um, I find that problematic. You know, I find it really problematic at the same time. I do think it's probably let me put it. Let me make a weird comparison. I think it is really problematic and I should stop that I'm using the word problematic so much. I think there are real problems with um, Twitter's decision to kick Trump off of Twitter. Um, I think there are free speech problems with it. I think there's a moral hazard to it. I think there's all sorts of things that one can legitimately complain about Twitter doing that. At the same time, I think it's been a net good for the country. And, um, and I hate being in a position of a two wrongs don't make or a two wrongs make a right kind of thing, but sometimes life actually works that way. Um, and, uh, but although far, far less often than the people who usually are talking about make two wrongs making a right think it does. But so similarly, I don't like what DeSantis I don't really like what DeSantis is doing. I don't like how he did it. I also don't like what Disney did and how it it screwed up its messaging. Um, and I've talked about that here before. But I do think there is something truly beneficial to sending the signal to corporate America more generally that if if you think, you know, there's no cost to you constantly doing this sort of woke virtue signaling, you're wrong and you should stay in your lanes and you should care about your bottom line and shareholder value and, and bringing quality products to the consumer and not wade in on every political controversy. I mean, that, that famous line from Michael Jordan, you know, works, which is, you know, he said he refused to endorse some democratic candidate and, you know, equipped this a long time ago, uh, well, Republicans buy sneakers too. And, um, the simplicity of that is, is, is also the genius of it. It's like, stay in your lane. Institutions do not all have to be part of some broader national Gleichschaltung, which we will not explore further. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's a reason why corporations suck up to China, but treat Georgia as if it is Germany in 1936, um, because they can get away with it because it's pleasing to a certain group of elites. It's, it's pleasing to the molecular gastronomy crowd of the Democratic Party that a lot of the, these corporate titans kind of hang out with. And throwing a brushback pitch at corporate America and saying, you know, there are consequences to this stuff, you know, sort of, you know, Florida's acting a little bit like China here. And I, I mean that with all of the nuance that implies. Um, but, you know, you can't, you know, going around dinging the United States and crapping on half of the country um, without consequence while refusing to condemn genocide and uh, state-sanctioned racism in China is just morally and grotesque and unacceptable. And um, sending that signal to corporate America is valuable. Um, and then there's like this last bit of it just on the one, on the one hand, on the other hand kind of thing. I completely get, you know, and some of my best friends are really into, and it's not that I disagree with them. I'm just not nearly as passionate about it. Um, how the 14th Amendment makes the Bill of Rights applicable to state governments just as much as the federal government and that those rights don't end at one state border. And I, and I know that's right and I agree with it in, in principle, but when it comes to sort of like public policy stuff, um, I get much less worked up when different states do different things. And even when they violate you know, some free market principles. It just, I'm not saying I'm in favor of it. I'm just less concerned about it because um, that's the whole point of federalism is letting different places 
govern themselves differently. And that's why I always say, you know, at the local level, I'm, I'm pretty conservative and um, communitarian, you know, at the state level, I'm much less so. And at the federal level, I'm just like pretty crazy libertarian. And um, because I think those degrees of policy involvement that come with subsidiarity and look, and, and in the family, I'm pretty authoritarian. Um, I mean, in my family, my wife's the boss, but you know, there's that line from a sitcom, but, um, I can't remember where it's from now, but you know, where the dad says, look, this family's a dictatorship and I'm a dick. Um, or I'm the dick. Um, and, uh, you know, and you can be authoritarian in the family because, um, the lines of authority and reciprocal obligation and um, and shared solidarity about what is good for the unit are such that it's not some formal thing. And no, you can't, you know, make your kids um, do evil things or any of that kind of stuff. But I think you get my point. And um, that's sort of the whole point of the subsidiarity stuff is that uh, – the, the, the formal rules of the legal extended order wither away or, or recede um, the closer you get to the ground. And so this is why I've always said, you know, it just it doesn't bother me as much as bad, as much as I think it's bad policy, per se. Um, and it depends whether it's bad policy. But, you know, if some town, some city wants to ban Walmart, um, I may disagree with it. You know, I may not. If it's some really quaint, adorable Vermont village uh, that has got, you know, a functioning downtown and it doesn't want Walmart to come in and destroy everything. I think having that democratically decided by that village is fine by me. And if they make whatever decision they make, I'm not that interested in second guessing. Um, But I don't think governors should be in the business of banning Walmart. And I certainly don't think, you know, Congress or the president or some federal judge should have anything to say about it one way or the other. Um, you know, look, unless Walmart is doing something that invites that kind of scrutiny, you know, if they're starting to do sort of mad scientist experimentations where they're giving, you know, uh, horses, human heads or whatever, you know, okay, then, you know, bring in the feds. But generally speaking, um, the, freedom to experiment with policy stuff broadens the closer you get to the ground. And so I'll admit, I didn't really know much about this. It's it's something Creek improvement district thing that Disney has benefited from until about a month ago. Um, You know, this, this, this semi autonomy that it has. um, I didn't know about it until a month ago. I always assumed that there was something like that going on. Um, but I didn't realize how formal um, this thing was and until recently. And in theory, I, I, I don't really love it, but I don't hate it either. Um, it's certainly, you know, since it's around for 50 years and the fact that I didn't know about it um, suggests that we haven't had lots of examples of authoritarian police brutality by the Disney cops. Um, or, um, you know, the Disney Gestapo putting people in Disney jail, um, for, you know, you know, crimes against the Disney state, like preferring Looney Tunes to Disney, which all sane people do. I mean, one of the understated unspoken things in all this is that most of the Disney original Disney cartoon characters suck, um, and, you know, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Elmer Fudd and all those guys, just much better cartoons than any Mickey Mouse thing I've ever seen. And I, I stand by that. Um, but anyway, the fact that we haven't seen, you know, horrible abuses of rights and privileges and, and, and democracy and rule of law um, by the Magic Kingdom suggests that it worked out okay. I think it worked out okay for Florida and it worked out okay for Disney and it worked out okay for... Um, employees and tourists alike. And so, and since it was just in one state, and I think states have a lot of uh, leeway in how they want to organize their domestic and economic affairs, it just doesn't bother me that much. 
And the idea of, and I think uh, this is a place where I think Charlie is, is absolutely right. This is vindictive and punitive. And there are a bunch of people who are retroactively being sort of libertarian and free market um, and talking about how this arrangement was corporate welfare and this arrangement was, um, uh, uh, you know, a special giveaway and picking winners and losers. And I'm sorry, but that crowd, the generally sort of Trumpy, Trumpy adjacent nationalist um, crowd do not get to all of a sudden wrap themselves in, you know, in the garb of Milton Friedman, because, you know, you just know that if it leaked from Disney that there was a um, special meeting inside, you know, corporate HQ where instead of content and creative people talking about how they wanted to weave in more and more, uh, you know, LBGTQI material and themes and all that, if instead they were saying how they wanted to weave in more traditionalist, conservative and Christian themes and family values themes, um, which let's just be honest, would be smarter and more aligned with the brand, um, uh, those same people would be saying Disney is, you know, my co-pilot now. Um, they would, they would not be saying, well, just because, you know, even though I agree with them, they shouldn't have this special treatment. It is just nearest weapon to hand, you know, pretextual post hoc blah, 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 kind of talking point stuff. And I don't take it seriously. And if the problems that these people are claiming exist with um, this arrangement, then they existed, as Charlie points out, five years ago or 10 years ago. And none of these people were saying boo about it. Um, and I should say, if such a tape leaked of Disney saying that kind of stuff about promoting Christian values and all that, man, would everybody, you know, skins would become shirts and shirts would become skins overnight. The 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 progressives would be screaming about you know christian fascism at disney and corporate rule and get rid of their special treatment and look you know florida is a theocracy and you know cancel your subscriptions instead it's going the other way around and um i should i guess that's a good place for me to end because i'm i gotta start a new podcast in 14 minutes but um you know just so you know where my head is at, you know, the reason why I'm not doing as much sort of goofy, funny writing and why I'm not doing as much sort of straight punditry, except in my, you know, my, my column, um, my syndicated LA times column, um, is because like this, this Disney thing is sort of emblematic of larger stuff right now. Um, I kind of underappreciated how much feeling like I had a team, um, gave me the sort of a certain kind of confidence and energy to write clearly about, you know, picking one side or another. And, um, on just a lot of issues these days, uh, I'm still a conservative. I just don't find, I don't, I don't think my team is particularly conservative in the ways that I like it. I would like it to be. Um, and, uh, and I have, I just have so little rooting interest in people like Kevin McCarthy that it, it makes it difficult to sort of muster the creative juices to sort of play whack-a-mole, whack-a-mole with Democrats for the precise reason that even though I think Democrats are a hot mess and making terrible decisions, and I think sort of woke progressivism is deeply, deeply flawed and at times dangerous and ill-advised in every imaginable way, that feeling of having to stop every few sentences and say, oh, and the Republicans suck too, um, out of a sort of a intellectual, you know, as, as out of a desire to be sort of have intellectual integrity and consistency, it's just exhausting. It's like someone puts sugar in the gas tank sometimes. And which is why I kind of look, I'm, I've been writing more about history and weird thumbsucky stuff because um, 
I just have, it gives you more room to just run where you want to run. And, um, uh, and I don't know, you know, I'm just telling you where I come from, but like the punditry stuff, uh, I feel like I just got too many hands, you know, on one hand, this, on the other hand, that to sort of do the sort of swing for the fences, uh, kind of stuff. And I'd like to go back to doing some of that kind of stuff because it's fun. Um, but I sort of got to pick and choose, um, the right topic. And, um, anyway, other than that, you know, what would be great is if you could, um, become a paid member of the dispatch, uh, community and it would help us to do an enormous amount of things that we want to do and that we're going to do eventually, but we could do them sooner. Um, I think you get incredible value. Um, and I think, uh, it's a good cause and, you know, there are only so many times where you can do, where you can spend 10 bucks a month on a good cause that actually delivers real value. And, um, and, you know, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. You know, you can still read the free stuff. Um, but you know, I get, I hear from lots of people who say they like the Wednesday G file better than they like the free Friday one. Um, you know, people like dispatch live. We're going to start doing special podcast stuff that's behind the paywall. Um, in fact, we're going to do all sorts of really exciting new things and it'd be great. If people could get in on the ground floor and the more people who do, uh, I shouldn't say the ground floor. We're like on the fifth floor by now, but you know, uh, we got a lot of floors to go. And if you could, um, um, be a fully engaged member, that would be great. Um, and if you can't totally understand, but you know, you could still spread the word about what we're doing. Give us some nice reviews about our podcasts. Um, and uh, um, other than that, I guess I'll just see you next time. Thanks.